Please be seated. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to that Psalm, Psalm 30. I'm going to look at it for a short time. Maybe before I do that, can I mention this book, The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness, which someone said to me this morning they were too busy to read, which kind of gets the point. Um, I really, 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 really recommend this. Uh, whether you're lazy or whether you're one of these people who's continually busy, I found this book just so, so, so helpful, um, particularly the way that we live our lives. There's copies at the back, and uh, you can give me five pounds for it, I think. We'll let you off with that. Five pounds if you want a copy of that, so you can get it uh, at the end. That's basically half price. Okay, let me just pray before we look at God's Word. Lord, we thank you that we're able to come into your presence. And we know that we each come with different motives and with different thoughts. We know, Lord, that some of us are very angry, some of us are very hurt, some are very confused, some are scared, some are sick, some are brokenhearted, some find it difficult to believe that you would want anything to do with us. Some have doubts and fears about you. Some have doubts and fears about themselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we look at your word, that it wouldn't just be a talk to us, but it would be you speaking to us, that you would speak to our hearts, through our minds, that we would desire to know you and to serve you and to obey you and to follow you. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Psalm 30, uh, it's a song that David wrote for the temple. We don't know whether the temple means just David's house, it says for the house of God, or it could be the temple that he had built or was uh, intending to see built. But the important thing about it is just how he describes what happens to him and how that can apply to us. So, for example, I don't know if you've ever met somebody or known somebody who kind of says to you, well, when you're my friend, you're my friend for life, but if you ever do anything to hurt me or you ever upset me, then I'll never forget it, and you're my enemy for life. And sometimes you see that. You see that there are people who have never forgotten and never forgiven, and there's kind of just great hatred almost, certainly very strong dislike between them. And we think, we think that's often the way that it is, and we think that that's the way that God is. Well, we're going to look at this psalm, and you'll see something a little bit different. Let's look, first of all, at verses 1 to 5, where what the psalmist is doing is he's saying that he was discouraged he was depressed, he was in real trouble, that people were laughing at him, people were mocking him, that he was ill because he needed healing, that he was near death. He was really struggling in all those ways, and he called out to God. He called, and God lifted him up, and his enemies were not allowed to exalt him. Sometimes you and I will wonder 
why bad things happen to us, why there's so many things that seem to be going so wrong in our lives. And one of the answers may simply be this. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but He shouts to us in our pains. And sometimes the only way that God gets our attention is when we are driven to such levels of despair that we cry out to God, O Lord, save me. O Lord, help me. I met a, a fisherman from the West Coast once, and he was somebody who never, ever thought of God. But as far as he was concerned, life was for fishing, making lots of money, coming back at weekends, making enough money so that you could get drunk and just do whatever you wanted. And one day he was fishing, and his boat sank. And as he jumped off the boat, as it sank, he says that he prayed, Oh, Lord, help me. God, help me. And he says that at that moment, his whole life changed. In between jumping off the boat and hitting the water, and you'd think, oh, yeah, well, he, he got ashore, and the next Sunday he was in church, and he told me that he now recognizes it was a really, really boring church, and the preacher was awful. But because he, he was just brand new as a Christian, everything sounded great. Everything sounded wonderful. And he was, he, God had really worked in his life. God had saved him. He learned about Jesus. He, he came to realize Jesus was his Savior and so on. Now, that's a very dramatic story. You lifted me out of the depths. For many, many people, for most of us, it's not like that. It's not that dramatic. Though you could pray this evening for God to lift you, and, and of course he could and He could save you. But for, some, for most of us, it's probably a more gradual thing, but it's nonetheless amazing. God heals. God saved Him from the pit. God saved Him from the grave. And so, in verses 4 to 5, He says, sing to the Lord, you saints of His. Praise His holy name. That's what we do when we're here, when we're singing to God's name. It's not about just making good music. It's about praising God and thanking God and responding for what God has done in ours and other people's lives. And he says, thank God for what He has done, for what has been revealed of Him in His wrath and in His holiness and in God's favor. Now, look especially at verse 5, for His anger lasts only a moment, but His favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping will remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Let me contrast that with us. This is how I think for most of us it would be the case or our experience. We would say of somebody or of ourselves, his anger lasts for a lifetime. His favor lasts only a few moments. Weeping lasts forever. Joy is only a moment and is always passing. Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Tale, has a character in it called Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, we actually sang a song called, uh, a tune called Ebenezer, I don't know, but it's not named after him. But um, Ebenezer Scrooge was a, a miserable, crotchety character. And I think a lot of human beings, maybe sometimes we're drawn into that. Maybe some of the people that you and I know are a little bit like that. That, as I said at the beginning, when you do something wrong to them, they never, ever forget it. 
They can't remember what happened yesterday, but they can remember how 12 years ago you said something or you did something or you hurt them. And there are an awful lot of people who are angry and bitter people. Occasionally, they lighten up. Occasionally, they brighten up. Occasionally, they show favor. But they're not really like that. There are, sadly, people who have that experience of their parents, their mother or their father. All that they remember about them is how miserable they were and how angry they were and how they were always shouting and how everything was always bad. Occasionally, they bought an ice cream. Occasionally, they did something that just gave the child that little bit of hope but it was always dashed by the underlying anger, by the continual bitterness, by the continual frustration with life. An awful lot of people put that onto God, and they perceive God as being the person who is angry all the time, and occasionally He lets the sun shine. Occasionally He shows us a bit of favor, but that's not the norm. Now, the psalmist puts it the other way. David says, his anger lasts only a moment. Yes, God does get angry, and he should get angry at the wrong and the injustice in the world, and the wrong and unjust things that we do. But his default position, if you like, is is mercy. His favor lasts a lifetime. We live in a world where for many people it is just tears and toil and hardness and difficulty. And occasionally, a Friday night or something, they feel they get some kind of joy, just occasionally. But the default position for the Christian should be the opposite, as we're seeing this this morning, that our default position is joy, and sometimes we get really hammered with stuff that is really difficult and hard and bitter and causes us to weep. But our default position is not weeping, Our default position is joy. We worship a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. For some of you who are maybe not Christians, you think, so what? Why is that surprising? Why is that astonishing? When you come to know more about yourself and you come to know more about God, I think it's one of the most astonishing things of all. And for those of us who are Christians, we see that in what Jesus has done. 1 John 2, 2, we've been looking at this in the mornings. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We saw that that means He's the one who turns aside God's anger from us. God hates sin, and He hates our sin, and He should punish our sin. But what Jesus did was He was punished in our stead. And so Matthew 27 verses 45 to 50. Let me just read you those verses because as we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus did. On the cross, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
the earth shook and the rocks split. It was an extraordinary time, an extraordinary event, that as Jesus died on the cross, darkness came over the land. I, I don't know if you were asleep this afternoon or if you missed the great Dundee storm, yet another one, but um, I was actually asleep, and I was blaming Emma Jane for waking me up, but I think it was probably the thunder and lightning. And then this, it was been beautiful sunshine, just like out there just now, beautiful sunshine. And then it just went all dark, and then it just sheeted down. And I'm not joking, my car was absolutely filthy, and within two minutes, it was spotlessly clean. It was just wonderful. It saved me a trip. But it was, the, the, the darkness was incredible. It just came, and there was just this incredible darkness. Well, not as incredible as the darkness that came over the land when Jesus died. Three hours, there was darkness. And at the end of those three hours, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cried out and again in a loud voice, and he died. And the temple, the heavy, heavy temple curtain in Jerusalem, that was ripped in two. The earth shook, the rock split, there was an earthquake. In fact, it even says that the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It was such a dramatic event. It was as though those gravestones out there that they split and people came back to life. It really was just the most incredible thing. Why? What was happening? Because Jesus was taking God's anger against sin, God's just unrighteous anger, and He was taking it, and He was carrying the burden of it, and He was dying in our place so that when we read, His anger lasts only a moment. That's true, because for us, the moment of Jesus being on the cross was an eternity of our hell, an eternity of our suffering. And from that, from that darkness, from that earth-shattering and earth-shaking experience, God's favor lasts for us, not just for a lifetime, but for eternity. So, David writes this song, and he's saying, God has delivered me by grace. And when we sit at the Lord's table, when we, we take communion, we follow Jesus Christ, we're saying, God's delivered me by grace. There's no other reason for God to deliver me, not because I'm good, not because I'm worthy, not because I'm religious, but just because of what Jesus has done. Then, verses 6 and 7, there's a problem. Look at what it says. When I felt secure, I said, I shall never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. God's favor lasts a lifetime. Now, here's the problem, and this is how perverse we are. We're in trouble. The boat's sinking. Our life's in a mess. We're really struggling with lots and lots of different issues. We pray. We ask God to help us. We come to know Jesus Christ. We are saved in that sense. God's favor comes upon us. Then what happens? We feel secure. We feel strong. David certainly would have felt that. The city that uh, he was to found, Zion on Mount Zion, it was captured. He'd built a fort around it. His power was increasing. His army was strong. His family was increasing. His enemies were defeated. The Philistines were defeated, and the temple of the Lord was to be built. 
And it's at that point that he needed to cry out to God for mercy. Why? Because sometimes when we feel secure, we feel secure for the wrong reason. We feel we'll never ever be shaken. I remember when I first learned to go a bike, ride a bike. Some of the younger children here probably can go a bike now. And when you're on the bike, you've got the shakes when you first start, and it's really wobbly. And you've got the, the what do you call the things that you put them? Ah. Stabilizers, that's the word. Hugh still needs them, no. <laughs> He's back onto it. When you get older, you have to go back onto the stabilizers. But um, you've got the stabilizers. And then comes the great day when your stabilizers come off. And your stabilizers come off, and you go down the road, and you shake a wee bit, and you're really, you're just going really, really cautiously and really, really carefully. And then what happens? You start getting more confident. And I remember I started thinking, this is quite easy. And then I did, and I can still do this, and occasionally I've still done it, and Emma Jane gives me a round for it. No hands. It's quite easy, really. Feet up on the handlebars. No hands. Yeah, don't do it in Dundee too much because there's too many potholes. But basically, you know, and the first time I did that, I was thinking, this is great. I'm the king of the road. I can go no hands. Uh, unfortunately, at one time, I was going no hands and tearing down a hill, and no hands going around a corner wasn't so easy, and the bike just went straight on and didn't go around the corner, and I ended up in a thorn bush, uh, extremely sore, and my pride probably battered more than my body. But that, in a way, is what happens to us. We think, this is going really well. Things are going really smoothly. Everything's great. And it's at that point when we're saying, I'll never be shaken, everything's great, that we need to cry to God for mercy. Because it's too easy to turn assurance of God's love into assurance about ourselves, to turn confidence into conceit. God had blessed David. God had prospered David. God was bathing, or David <coughs> was bathing in, in God's sunshine. But look what happens. All it takes is a cloud across God's face, and David is terrified. When you hid your face, I was dismayed. When you hid your face, I was dismayed. If you are a Christian, complacency is a dreadful thing, and laziness is a dreadful thing. We are too often, uh, the expression is, at ease in Zion. Jesus tells a story of a man who was rich and who was a fool. He was a farmer, and things were going really well. He had a bumper harvest season. What did he decide to do? He said, well, I'm going to build bigger barns, plant more crops, build bigger barns, just keep raking it in, until he came to the point where he said, that's it. Now eat, drink, and be merry. I've got everything. And God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. In other words, he was going to die. He wasn't going to enjoy any of it. There's a complacency in there. There are people who say, again, non-Christians will often have this kind of inkling, this feeling, yes, I need to know God, but not just now. Let me get everything else sorted out. I've got life to get on with. I'll think about Jesus Christ another time. But that's a complacency. How do we know? And there are those of us who are Christians as well. We just think, ah, oh, well, things will just carry on. God will do this. I'll just get on with my life. But that's a dreadful thing. We feel secure. We say we shall never be shaken. 
And then we only call upon God when we are shaken. Now, I think what we do when we take communion, it reminds us about that. As we hold the bread in our hand, you look at that bread and you, you understand that it's a picture of the body of Jesus Christ, the literal body of Jesus Christ, broken for you. You, you take the cup, you look at the cup, you look what's in it, the wine. It's a picture of the blood of Christ shed for you. You cannot be complacent when you see that. You cannot be complacent when you see that your sin and my sin, the only way it could be forgiven was for God's Son to have His body broken and His blood shed. You never, ever will be complacent when you grasp that. That's why the communion is such a good thing, because it's such a, a, a pictorial, it's such a picture, such a reminder of what God did for us, how deep the Father's love for us. And then the last thing is this, verses 8 to 12, He comes out of His complacency. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. And he argues with God, what gain is there in my destruction, my going down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. He continually cries out to God for mercy and grace. We should pray for that. And then there's transformation. There's praise, and there's peace, and there's a sense of permanence in God. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. And this morning we looked at Philippians 4.4 about, again, how the default position of the Christian is joy. You know how if you've got a computer and it gets, it's getting all messed up, or you've got an iPhone or something like that, and you're loading more and more and more programs and different things, and it gets all cluttered. Sometimes what you have to do is, I, I give up trying to sort it out, and I just press the button that says reset to you know, the default options right at the very beginning. Wipe out everything else, reset. Well, there's kind of like a reset with the Christian, that our lives are full of clutter, that our lives get all messed up. And our default position is, because of what Jesus has done for us, our default position is one of joy in the Lord. And we need to get back to that. Where's all your joy gone? The Bible asks. Where's it all gone? What has happened, says Paul, to your joy. What's happened to it? Well, we maybe need to ask that, and the communion takes us back to that. It is a Eucharist. It is a feast of joy. Now, when I think of this uh, dancing with joy, it's an expression of you just something happens. You just feels sometimes as a feeling of being overwhelmed with the joy of God. And there's several examples I could think of, and I want to share this one to you with a guy called Pascal, um, who, he was a French thinker, amazing guy. You can get his, a book called Pensées, which is thoughts. Um, some of you could read it in French. Natalie will manage, no problem. But the rest of us would probably struggle with that. But you get it in English. And it really, really, really is worth reading because it's just a series, it seems, almost of random thoughts. But there's some great stuff in there. Now, Pascal, when he died, they went into his coat. And in the inner lining of his coat, he'd sewed into his coat what I'm going to read to you just now. It was something that happened to him when he was uh, really struggling. He went through some really hard times. 
and when he, he called out to God. And it was for him, it was a particular year, a particular event. Let me read it to you. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, feast of St. Clement, Pope, and Martyr, and of others in the martyrology. Eve of St. Cyroscanus, I think, Martyr and others. From about half past ten in the evening till half past midnight, it's a very precise um, recollection of what happened to him. God of Abraham, fire, he said, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, thy God shall be my God, the world forgotten and everything except God. He can only be found by the ways taught in the Gospels. Greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world had not known Thee, but I have known Thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have cut myself off from Him. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. My God, wilt Thou forsake me? Let me not be cut off from Him forever. And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I have cut myself off from Him, shunned Him, denied Him, crucified Him. Let me, <coughs> let me never be cut off from Him. He can only be kept by the ways taught in the gospel. Sweet and total renunciation, total submission to Jesus Christ and my Director. Everlasting joy in return for one day's effort on earth. I will not forget thy words. Amen. I've cut myself off from him, shunned him, denied him, crucified him. Let me never be cut off from him. Sweet and total renunciation. I don't know what happened to Pascal in those two hours. He wrote it down as best he could. But he had a sense of Jesus Christ, an awareness of Jesus Christ, which at one and the same time magnified his lostness, but also exalted the beauty and power of Jesus Christ. And that word at the beginning, fire, fire, he felt it in his bones, he felt it in his heart, he felt it in his life. And because Pascal was who he was, because he knew that he would forget because he wanted others to remember, he wrote this down and he sewed it into the inner cloth of his coat and it was found there after he died. I will not forget your words. Jesus is able to turn our mourning, our wailing into dancing. The hardest circumstances we'll ever face, Jesus can turn into joy. You just go onto the website and have a, our website and have a look again at the Woodsoto Choir. And that's the thing that struck me about their dancing and their singing, the kids from Uganda, blighted by AIDS, orphans, dealt, as some people would, would put it, dealt an awful hand in life. How could they have such joy. And it wasn't just when they were singing, when you met them and so on. Uh, they were just fantastic kids because of what Jesus did, because Jesus 
turned that round because Jesus rescued them and Jesus changed them. That's what we commemorate as we take communion. That's what we rejoice in. And my prayer is that all of us who are Christians would take these words and would apply them that, yes, there's sorrow, but joy comes in the morning. Not the default, not saying, I'm happy just now, but I'm expecting sorrow in the morning, but almost the other way around. Joy comes in the morning. And if you're not a Christian, then I can just simply say this to you. In Matthew, in the words of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, this is what He says, "'Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light.'" Jesus welcomes those who are burdened and brings rest and peace and joy. Lord, bless Your Word to us. Help us to apply it, to understand it, and to live it as we worship You, both here and wherever You call us. In Your name, amen.